So this week, I was asking God about this story um, and what about it in the Bible was super important for us to hear tonight. Um, if you can go to the title slide, who here would like to take a wild guess at who we're talking about tonight that Jesus got to interact with? Nicodemus? How did you guys know? You looked at him too, Hector? Oh, I knew. I shouldn't have called on Anthony. I knew that. So, okay. So I was asking the Lord what part of this story to focus in on. And to be honest, I hate doing things last minute, but I wasn't having any peace about anything until about 10 o'clock last night. Um, and the part of the story that he kept reminding me of just happened to be the one part of the story that none of my old dead guy friends ever really write about. So it was even worse that I didn't have any help with what I wanted to say. But I'm encouraged tonight that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you if you'll just open the ears of your heart to hear him, if you'll be willing to submit yourself to hear him. So <clears throat> there were some major minds once who were studying language at one time at, at Cambridge, and they said, we want to find language at its most basic form. So they went to find really isolated tribes where they thought language would be at its most basic so one of the spots they, they went to was in the Middle East, and they found some traveling gypsy tribes, and uh, they learned the language for camel. So when they'd see a camel, they'd go, is that a camel? And their little Bedouin guide, a Bedouin guide of some sort would say, camel. And, uh, and so they'd continue traveling, and they'd see another camel, and they'd say, camel. And the Bedouin, uh, the Bedouin would go, no, 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 flock. And he'd go, not camel. No, 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 no. Flock. And so you'd say, flock. Yes, flock. Okay, cool. So they'd see another camel, and they'd say, camel. And they'd say, no, no, no. And he'd say, flock. And he'd say, no, 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 no. Baraka. And what happened was this gypsy tribe had over 200 words for camel, but they didn't have any adjectives. They didn't have a word for a type of camel, as in like an animal species. So whether it was a double-humped camel, a single-humped camel, a brown camel, a tan camel, a, you know, a short camel, old camel, whatever camel, every variation of camel had a different word. So phonetically unrelated, there were no suffixes, postfixes, or any other fixes. There wasn't any of that. So every camel, in their eyes, was a unique word, and in their minds, a unique type. The difference between a one-humped camel and a two-humped camel, in their minds, was like the difference for us between a dog and a chicken. That's how they viewed them. And it, was not, it, was, it just wasn't at all the same animal. So they thought, okay, these, these studiers, they said, okay, that's interesting. These tribes we thought would have the most basic language turned out to have the most complicated language. And so they went to these aborigines of Australia. And if you go into uh, an aboriginal, every feature of the land has a name. If you talk to an aboriginal, you'll realize that every feature of the land has a unique name. This hill has a name. That hill has a name. But none of them are a part of the overall type hill. Does that make sense? So to them, they don't know what a hill is. They just see that and say, oh, that's, that's, that's Tom. Or they see that hill right next to them and say, oh, that's Jerry. Does that make sense so far? And so they'd see a piece of a river, which to them they don't know is a river. They just see a section. They see a turn, another section. And uh, each one had a unique name. And each section had a, a unique name that's distinct. So... What they found, these researchers, was that the thing that kept the aborigines primitive, in other words, basic, they didn't like grow, they stayed really simple, um, <clears throat> wasn't that they were too simple-minded. 
but because they were overcomplicated. They couldn't sum up something and say, that's a river. They couldn't look at a mountain range and say, that is a mountain among other mountains. You see what I'm saying? And because each variation of something was so important, each hill, each section of the river, they got pretty superstitious. If you skipped something and you didn't have a specific name for it and you didn't say that thing's name, you would upset this little deity and he might come for you. So they had to know exactly everything or they couldn't know anything at all. That was like, that's what kept them so primitive. And I feel like a lot of us might suffer from a very similar problem when we look at scripture. We say, no, 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 no. I'm not like that. My situation is different from this guy. I don't have problems like Nicodemus had. I don't struggle with this exact thing. These promises don't apply to me because what they are doing in this story is different than what I'm doing and what I'm going through. And I'll tell you what, if you want to continue or start to have a primitive walk with God, you will keep insisting that certain passages of the Bible do not apply to you. But if you want to grow and take new land and have God God move in your life and you begin to know that you know that you know him, then you have to quit saying, when you look at the Bible, oh, I'm different. Or, ah, you have to look and begin to say, I am that man. This verse is actually talking about me. Yes, everyone is unique. Nothing in your life is going to match my life, although we want, for some reason, people to come to Jesus the same way we did. But But you aren't me, and you're not going to respond to things the way I do. So God knew this when he spoke these things in the Bible. He knew that your situation would be different than mine, but just because it's different doesn't mean it doesn't apply. Oh, but my situation really is different. Like, it's different. It's unique. Well, yes and no. The same God with the same healing and the same cross is calling each one of you by name to come home and is calling you to a real and practical victory over sin. I'm going to pray, and we'll begin to get into this in a second. Jesus, you are sweet. Would you bring us back to a very simple pursuit of you? A simple wonder of being your friend. May there be no greater glory, no greater treasure in our life than being able to be with you. And may we want to remove everything from our lives that you cannot have fellowship with. We love you so much. Holy Spirit, will you speak to all of us, including me tonight? You know where this hits in our hearts, so please speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to start in John chapter 3. John is the fourth book in the New Testament, so if you have your Bible, and you should bring your Bibles to Chi Alpha, um, you can go there. And I'm going to invite my friend Josh up to read. And as he comes up, I'm going to give you a little background before we get going. So right before what we're about to read, Jesus, and this is actually chronologically correct, not just um, correct, like uh, in the same orders it was written. Sometimes it's not chronological all the time. But Jesus had just went into the Jewish temple, which looked something like a picture I couldn't get off the internet, so it's fine. Um, and he saw some people marking up the price of animals so that they could make a profit. Essentially, they're making a, oh man, I forgot the word again. Uh, a retail store for animals for the sacrifices that people needed. So they were marking them up in price to make a profit. So people would have to buy an animal way overpriced just so they can make an offering to the Lord for their sins, which would be like me saying, if you want to come up here and respond to the Lord tonight, I'd like a quarter, please. That's what essentially what was happening. 
And Jesus wasn't particularly happy about this, so he grabs whatever he could find. He makes a whip, and he just starts whipping these guys. And this could, either, this could either be a really comedic scene, you know, this sweet Jesus that the disciples just started following is just unleashing this holy anger on a bunch of tools. But all of a sudden, or it could just be this scary thing that if they'd already realized, man, this is the son of God. This is the creator of the universe. And he's running after these guys in sandals and a whip. Like, that could also be really scary. So then the Jews ask him a few things. The scene's over. And the passage we're about to get to is what we're coming to. And it could have either been the same night or a few nights after, but we know it was fairly recently after. So with that being said, Josh, you can steal this from me. And I'll give you this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to know Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are... You, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, I just want to thank the Lord for bringing us here tonight and allowing us to be together in fellowship and to read the, um, the word and to be able to just be with each other and to gain better understanding together and to really see like real community with each other. And I just thank the Lord for bringing me up here tonight to really uh, spread this like with y'all. And like to <laughs> thank Taylor for bringing me up here to read as well. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. All right. So basically what we're seeing is a man who went to Jesus with questions. We don't know how long he had these questions. Some of us here have questions. Some of us, our deepest questions that we ever think about is, should I brush my teeth once a day or twice? But so this man comes to Jesus with questions burning in his mind. So who is this guy? It says that he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. So later in John, we find out that he works for something called the Great Sanhedrin. And to keep this simple, the Great Sanhedrin is the Jewish equivalent of our Supreme Court. That is what he's a part of. Because there were local Sanhedrin, there were little mini, mini courts and mini, mini judicial systems, kind of like ours. And the standards to be in the Great Sanhedrin were actually, I think, higher than the standards we have for our own Supreme Court justices. So to be on the Sanhedrin, the great one, you had to be a wealthy man, you had to be good looking, uh, which by the age you had to be to be there was really, you know, you were really good looking. You had to be morally upright. Um, you pretty much have to have a master or PhDs in over seven different topics. Uh, you had to be a master of many subjects. And you had to be fluent in at least four or more languages because they didn't want anyone accusing them of not understanding uh, like other, other situations they were trying. So, and some of us think that getting a bachelor's degree is pretty gnarly hard, so. I mean, so this guy, Nicodemus, is educated. He has money. He holds an important position in Israel. And he's a great Bible teacher. I think this guy has a lot of what all of us here work pretty hard to get. We want to sometimes be important to someone, even if it's just one other person. We want money so that we can just have financial freedom. We want to graduate so we can accomplish something. 
And some of us want to be knowledgeable in the Bible and in things of the kingdom. But this guy already has them all, right? He's in his 60s and he has all of it. We all crave something to live for, something to achieve, and something to make our lives all about. Does that make sense? So I'm not the biggest fan of these kind of movies. I think that people make dumb decisions in them, decisions in them like they do in scary movies, but it's where they go like cave diving and like they're like archaeologists searching for something like Indiana Jones, and you come to this this like this cave and there's a room. It looks like it was perfectly carved out and it looks like there's a sign and an image of someone dying and you're like, "Well, that looks like a great idea to go in there." And so you walk in and you see this amazing relic. Looks like it's worth a lot of money. And there just so happens to be a rock version of that relic on the floor, essentially a fake version. It's like, oh, look at that. Someone just happened to put a fake version of that right next to this so I can take that one and replace it. And so they think this is a good idea. Then there's a bunch of other things in another language with pictures of more people dying and more people suffering and this thing being removed and everything, the world falling apart. And they think, I don't know what that means, but that thing looks really nice and I'll just trade it out. And so it's like those scary movies. They just do something stupid. It's like uh, maybe Indiana Jones and the Goonies, stuff like that, I think. I don't want, I've never seen them, but I'm quoting them like a boss, so it works. Um, and what usually happens is they, they want to take this ancient relic from its rightful place and try to replace it with a counterfeit. And we obviously know it doesn't work out really well in the end. Everything still falls apart. Likewise, we might very well have mistaken a counterfeit treasure that's meant to sit on our hearts for the authentic treasure that Jesus offers. So what is this treasure? I'll tell you first what it's not. The thing that Jesus is offering is not a, good, a new way of godly thinking. It's not a new way of godly living. And it's not a new way of godly speaking. What on earth are we here for then? And if that's not, that's not what Jesus is offering... Because Nicodemus already had all of those. Nicodemus wasn't looking for a change in doing, saying, or thinking. Nicodemus was craving a change in being. No doubt, he read, the, he read about the power of God to change someone's very being, the essence of a person in Ezekiel 48 and in Joel, but he had not experienced it yet. Here he is, most likely in his 60s, and he still has questions burning in his heart for what it takes to be changed, really changed, and what it takes to be a new man, as if everything that has happened in your lives that you can remember was wicked or was like traumatic, it, as though it's all gone, as though it hasn't happened. I think that this is a lot of people here. They're, these are usually great things we talk about. They're great aspirations and they're great ways to be encouraged. And we hear something and we think, yes, I'm going to live a holy and submitted life to Jesus. I want to be like him. And I want to follow him. But then someone cuts you off in traffic. And you lose your temper. Or a girl or a guy walks by and you gaze way too long. And a lot of stuff happens. Your schedule gets crazy. And you begin to stress. And you worry. And you get anxious. And none of these are from God. He promised victory over them. 
He promised victory over gossip, over jealousy, and over pride. But for some reason, we keep failing. Whatever that is on your mind, this thing that you know you have tried so hard, you fight against so often, and it just seems like it keeps coming back. This is what we're talking about. Too many of us rent the throne of our hearts out to guys. We rent them out to sex. We rent the throne of our hearts to school, to experiences, to family expectations, or to approval of others. We rent our hearts out to the highest bidder. Some Christians have settled for a life of constant struggle with anxiety and anger and dishonoring thoughts. And what most people say is, oh, it's okay, brother. Like, we'll be free from all that on the other side of eternity. And Nicodemus is a big deal because it took him decades to finally see the one who could change everything. But we don't, so that we don't have to learn by trial and error like he did. He had a long time to learn this. The one who can change not just your living and not just your thinking and not just your saying, which sounds crazy to even think you would change that anyway, probably to yourself maybe, but he can change your very being, the very person you are. Many of us want to be different, especially when you've opened your eyes to the beauty of Jesus. You want to be different. We want to have victory over sin, but we don't know how. And sometimes we may think that who we are now affects who he's able to make us. So Nicodemus said to Jesus, uh, by, he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So that's who this guy is. He's a wealthy dude, and he decides, I need to go see Jesus. And so he goes with them with questions, doesn't even know where to start. This happens when you see your hero like Winky Pratt, and you're like, I have one, one night with him. What do I ask out of everything I could ask? And so he walks in, and he's like, man, like, if you really are who you say you are, I don't, even, I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know what questions worth asking first. But I know that you're a teacher, and I know that because of the signs you've done, you're a teacher from God. So now imagine this. Flip the scene. Name for me someone extremely famous. Beyonce? Who, who said that? You said it? You like Beyonce a lot? No? Okay. Name, name someone famous that you like. George Lopez, Chris Pratt, Will Smith. Who said Will Smith? Okay, George, we'll, we'll use Will Smith. So what if Will Smith came up to you and said, man, George, I've been getting emails about your small group lessons. I've heard stories about your humility and your hunger. And I, I know this change. This, my friend has seen in you that you don't know him, but somehow he knows you. But this, friend, this change my friend has seen in you, it must be from God. Can you tell me? What happened? Can you tell me more about this? Now you have the opportunity to bring someone famous, someone out of our realm of influence to Jesus. What does that make you feel like? Honestly, if Will Smith was to sit there and say, can I come to small group and let you teach me? He's a normal person. Most people's reactions is, well, I'm actually pretty nervous. Like, this is, this, is, this is different. I don't want to mess up. You wouldn't just open up by saying, you, you know, you want to be a little cautious, try not to overstep your bounds. You wouldn't want to open up and be like, oh, Will, bless your dirty heart. You need to repent and you, before you can see the kingdom of God ever, which is true. But you wouldn't open up like that because of who he is. 
Some people get nervous to talk to other people. They want to be bold for Jesus, but who the other person is, maybe an athlete, maybe some pretty girl, uh, a confident-looking guy, whatever, this affects sometimes how we talk to people and our confidence with them. <clears throat> how we are is sometimes affected by who someone else is. And that's pretty common, but Jesus isn't like this at all. Nicodemus is a Supreme Court judge, the best of the best, Jesus' doorway into saving the upper class, but he doesn't even acknowledge once Nicodemus' prestige or his position. He says, look, I know you. I know who you are, but who you are, what you know, and the things you've done, none of that really moves me. You and all your successes are no more to me and no less to me than the beggars that were being taken advantage of in the temple yesterday. You need exactly what they need, and you don't need any less of it than they do. Jesus didn't say, oh, God, you know, like, you know so much. Like, you've read so much. You've, you've been so, you've been around so much. I'll just come up with a different way for you to see the kingdom of God. Like, you're special now. And he didn't say, oh, man, man, this guy's a big deal. My friends are going to really think I'm lame if I, if I, he doesn't want to hang out with me anymore. And so, but that's not what Jesus does. And Alfred Edersheim says, there was no excitement, no undue deference, no eager politeness, no compromise, no attemptive persuasiveness, and no accommodation. Truth, for us, we need to know this when you speak to people. Truth is still truth, even when spoken to important people. Reality is still reality, even when our society agree, disagrees with it. This is easily the biggest hurdle to receiving real change and real victory. That's why I'm mentioning this. Because Jesus overlooked his position, and we need to know that there's no... Like, there's no high status anyone here can have that's going to give you a shortcut. And there's no, there's no one that's so far and so bad that you have to take a longer route to be with Jesus than other people. Jesus is no respecter of persons of status, or of your tenure in his kingdom. He praises those who finish the race, yes, but he doesn't say that the longer you're in the race, the less you have to run it to win. This is what he says to Nicodemus. He says, any man who wants to see the kingdom of God, because that's what Nicodemus and a Supreme Court judge is in the light of Jesus, is just any other man. It doesn't matter how much we know or how much we don't know. In the kingdom of God, there is no separation between veteran and rookie, new and old. The way to the kingdom is still the same. The road in the kingdom is still narrow. The same cross was carried for each of us. He didn't die for the worthy. We are all unworthy. I hope we know that. And he didn't prepare a fountain of life for the seventh year small group leader and beyond. No amount of service changes his attitude towards us. So why would it ever change ours towards him? If you've been blatantly denying God's rightful place in your life, he still says to you, any man who wants the kingdom must be born again. If you've served Jesus faithfully for months and years and you just want victory, he says to you, any man who wants to see the kingdom must be born again. And if you've been hurting God's heart by claiming love for him, but only living a half-committed life to him, he still says to you, any man who wants the kingdom of God must be born again. Jesus can give you victory over sins, over habits, over thoughts, 
over your emotions and over everything that is opposite to his character. And I promise I'm going to get into the how in just a second. God wanted fellowship with you and he wants victory for you so bad that he gave up what meant most to him in order to get to you. Jesus didn't die our death so that we could lie down and accept that you're just not going to overcome sin on this side of eternity. He did not die the way he did for us to accept that and lay over. Jesus came to give you overflowing fullness, not this empty, jaded life. And this doesn't sound like it comes with a side of never-ending hopelessness and hopeless struggle. Because of the cross and because you were loved more than you could ever imagine, each and every one, Jesus bought, brought you to God and he brought you the possibility of being born again. But how? How? Some of you, this is our final point. Some of you, and I think if you're going to pay attention to any part, let it be this. This is a big deal. Some of you really need a touch of God to heal you. Some of you have been dealing with outward sin that you know needs to go. Some relationship that needs to end. But I guarantee everyone here has some emotional, mental, or spiritual baggage that you want to be free from. Before Jesus, I did some things with girls that have affected them forever, and I can't take that back. But I also dealt with the consequences of them. And when I first met Jesus, I had a really bad problem of thinking about these things I had done often and how I wanted to do them again. And I didn't know what to do. But I knew that they weren't from God and that God couldn't have fellowship with these kinds of thoughts, and so I didn't want them. So the only, I did the only thing I could think of doing. Every time a thought like that came to my head, I stopped what I was doing, and I beat that thought into submission by saying, Lord, this isn't from you. This isn't like you, so I don't want it. Help me think of something else. And I would repeat that until I did think of something else. I had to take these thoughts captive and make them bow to what the Bible says. And before I realized it, I, I, before I realized that they were gone, I don't even remember the day I stopped thinking about them uh, at the time. <clears throat> and I had done it so much that I stopped, I, I began to pray this so much, I, I stopped thinking about them and I didn't realize it until three months later that I hadn't had a thought like that. But what I realized at the time is I didn't get rid of them for good. I had quit them but I didn't beat them and I didn't defeat them. And I feel like that's how it is for a lot of us. I don't think we've gotten rid of all our thoughts and all our habits and all our attitudes. I think we've kind of put them in a room. And as long as there is a room in your heart to hide it in, you will never be free. You may be able to ground it for a month like a little child, but at the right opportunity, it will come out and say, well, here I am. And you'll be like, I thought I dealt with you. But you didn't. You just put it in a room till it could come back out. And that's not freedom. Watch. Imagine this word picture with me. So you live in a house with just an awful dog. Awful. Just awful. I have an awful little dog named Lily. She craps on everything and she steals my daughter's food. So anyways, you lock her up and you put her in a kennel. But that dog is just making an awful lot of racket. So the company's over. You have friends over and you're embarrassed of this horrible animal. And so you keep her locked up in another room, and you guys, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, guys, like, stay away from that room. Why? There's just a little piece of hell in there. And it's awkward. And there's certain conversations you kind of have to, like, step in front of, you know? 
and you're not actually free in your home because there's this thing you're trying to protect, but that you're embarrassed of. And you're like, oh yeah, dude, yeah, come over. Let's go hang out in the, back, in the back patio where you don't have to know that I have this creature living alive and well in my house that I'm ashamed of. And that's not freedom. The Bible says, if the Son of Man has set you free, you are free indeed. It also says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request, let your request be made known to God. It says it right there. There is a remedy to have it done away with. It seems straightforward in the Bible that if you will do this, peace of God, which sounds really nice, I imagine for a lot of us, peace of God, which passes all understanding, will be yours. This is quite a promise. And this is what Nicodemus wanted. He wanted a change that lasted. I think we need some freedom. And step one to finally having freedom from whatever it is the Lord is bringing to your mind that you know you want freedom from is you have to admit it. You have to admit it. It takes 21 days, research says, to reform a habit and quit something. Day one, you have to admit it. I have an anger problem. I have an expectation problem. I have a priority problem. I have a worry problem. I have a pride problem. You have to admit out loud your problem. And the thing is, the Bible talks about these things. But how sad would it be, it talks about freedom, but how sad would it be if by the end of this semester, you haven't grown away from it at all? You've just grounded it a few times. What if we could have definite victory? As though someone could look at you and would never know you struggled with that. So your first 21 days, you quit. The next 21 days, you beat it. So first you quit it. The next 21 days, you beat it. And the third 21 days, you defeat it. I'm not talking about getting stoked about the idea of being freed from all these things and you're going to leave here and like, I'm going to get free from everything. We're talking about being freed from one thing right now at a time. If you do it this way, if you take the time to find one thing, single out one thing, and you take on that one thing head on, we're talking about being freed from 17 life-altering things in a year. Most people aren't freed from 17 life-altering things in their entire life. And that's not what the Bible talks about. And I'm just about done. I'm just going to say a few more. <clears throat> I want to have the Bible truths own me so that when someone looks at me, they would never realize I had problems with the things that whatever's coming to your mind and whatever's coming to my mind. And this is what Nicodemus wanted. He wanted a change in being, to be a new man, to know how to be someone that isn't the product of a life lived before Jesus. You have to take hold of this thing that you're not free from and not just hide it in another room like you grounded it and are waiting for it to come out. Freedom, where it's not, oh, I'm, I'm just doing better. I'm doing better than I, I'm doing better than I was. But real, real freedom. All you have to do is admit where the problem is. And the first step in admitting you're free is admitting first that you aren't. I know it's hard. The longer you walk with Jesus, the harder it is to admit. I'm not free from this. This is an elementary thing, but I'm not free from it. And I don't know why. Some of us are held captive by our ways of thinking. We still suffer. We don't have... 
We don't have the songs of victory and the new birth. We don't have these promises in our life. We've gotten better with excuses for why it's okay. It's who I am. It's just part of my mentality. It's my past. It's my, it's my mental problems. I was born this way. My boss, my situations, people are just horrible around me. You have to admit that there is a problem. And I want you to think, if you can say that problem in one word, I want you to begin to think about this because we're going to do something after. I want whatever this one thing you'd like to single out. I want you to begin to think of one word or one sentence. I was told one word might not be enough for some people. Um, the Bible talks about power, the power of confession. If you confess with your mouth, if you say it out loud with your mouth, you don't just think about it, you say it to one another. The day, that's day one of being born again, of Jesus changing your very being. And then it's day one of taking everything captive to the obedience of the Bible. In other words, we have these thoughts. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to go do that. I'm not going to do that. That's not me. But no, like you have to take these thoughts captive. When a thought comes to your mind, when anger and the thought of losing your temper comes to your mind, you grab that thought, you stop what you're doing, as monotonous as it might be, and you make it bow to the Bible. You make it bow to what God says. Not what you feel. You grab these thoughts of lust and you make it stop. You beat it into submission for days on end until it goes away. You say to yourself that whether I understand it or not, whether I understand God's truth or not, whether I feel it or not, whether I think it's me or not, I'm not going to let my thoughts about it determine my action. I'm just going to do what the Bible says, and I'm going to take God at his word. Whatever my problem is, whether it's temper, anxiety, lust, dishonoring, whatever it is, step one is to admit it. Confess with your mouth. Confess your sins to one another. And we're going to admit to the Holy Spirit who's in this room what this thing is that we're not free from. If you hide it in the darkness, you have to bring it out into the light through your mouth. And after tonight, you have to tell each other. So what we're going to do is if you have a paper, this is important. This is important. It might seem corny uh, and whatever it might seem like, but this is real. Um, you need, I think I'd like you guys in, in just a sec um, to be ready to get in your small groups. And uh, if you're not in a small group, you didn't come with one, find one. Just find one. You know, they're all loving and great. I trust them all. You don't have to be embarrassed. You need to write this down, and you need to share it with each other in small group. Very honestly, all the ugly, all the bad, whichever one you want rid of, you just say it. You admit it. Who cares? Who cares what anyone thinks? You have to help each other. You have this conversation after Chi Alpha. You talk about it again, and you help each other so you can be free. You ask each other, how's that going that we talked about the other day? How is that? You know? This is how you be, get free from these things. You no longer have to hide it in the back of your house. We don't have to give it a nice name. If your Bible says not to do it, we will call it sin. Simple. When you read, if the Bible says not to do it, let's call that sin. And if it does say to do it, we will call that righteousness. God can heal, heal us in a moment. Or we can take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. So my practical thing is, 
an, uh, an emotional problem, a temper problem, an anxiety problem, when these thoughts come to your head, these emotions come to you, you stop what you're doing and you grab hold of that thought and you make it bow. Whether you feel like that thought is true or not, whether you feel like your emotions are valid or not, like you don't lose your temper. You bring it in and that may take, it might happen seven times a day, but there's going to be a day where all of a sudden someone cuts you off and you don't want to throw the bird anymore. You're just like, Lord bless him. That's your reaction now. But that takes time. And it takes commitment. So um, for the rest of this, I will uh, come back up here in a sec after I pray and after we give maybe just a few minutes to talk with your small groups and get with each other. Um, again, I don't care if it's corny, just do it because this is real. This can be real freedom. Um, you guys get in your small groups in just a sec and you write down in one sentence, in one word, whatever it takes, and you don't throw that paper away. You don't throw it in a drawer. You tack it up at the wall in your home, on your corkboard, or whatever you have on your fridge. You tack it up, and you know that every day you're going to be free from this before this semester's over. So I'm going to pray, and you guys can get together. Jesus, you experience everything that we have to experience. You had no extra help that we don't have. And you were perfect. You were blameless. You were good. You were sweet, Lord. Help us to be like you. Holy Spirit, put your finger on whatever it is in our lives that has to go. And let there be real victory. Let there be real commitment so that we can walk more freely with you. The greatest gift of all, getting to be with you. Holy Spirit, would you lead us by your power? Please lead us as we do this. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.